Lord, we come to you now and we ask that you would help us to understand. Lord, speak to us this difficult passage in Scripture. Lord, we we ask that you would guide us, that you would emphasize the things you need us to hear. And Lord, may we may we give you glory, even in the difficult passages that we read. But Lord, may we give you glory for all that you have done, all that is still ahead, and all that we are reading about here. Lord, be with us now as we come to this section in this book of Revelation. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have you ever been to a concert? And at the start of the concert, there's maybe a warm-up act or two. Uh, and you go through those. You might even arrive late because you're not too interest in, interested in them. You really want to get to the climax of the event. You want the headline band. And you wade through the other stuff to get to the band that you really came to see. And in the past, there might even have been up to six bands. The Beatles were actually once when they first started on tour, the, the first of the warm-up acts before they became famous. But you went to see the, the, the headline act. And you waited until the end, and that's, that's what you were there for. So too in a lot of films, especially comedies, you would go through a lot of storyline, and then you get to towards the end there would be nearly a climax near the end and you would have a chase scene and as the editors as the company executives the producers would be going through a rough edit watching through a rough edit of the film those who have made the film love to put in everything that they did because every scene was precious to them but the the producers say listen hold on there's too much of just dialogue in there, cut to the chase, cut out a lot of that stuff here, and just give us the exciting chase towards the end of the, the the film. And we get the word cut to the chase, or the phrase cut to the chase from that as well. In other words, we look forward to what is the climax of a movie, the climax of an event. Well, Unlike in a film which has been edited and you need to cut out some of the superfluous stuff, there isn't anything superfluous in Revelation. But there's a sense in which we've arrived at the chase scene. We've arrived at the the, the climactic end. It's We're starting on the, on the final stages of, of the end of the story of Revelation. We're not quite there yet, but we're in the chase scene in Revelation chapters 17 to 18. It will continue on until the end of chapter 20 with a brief uh, intermission and a brief change of focus at the start of chapter 19 on the the rejoicing in heaven and then the the focus will return to the closing scenes of sin and Satan being cast away forever the end of Revelation 20 they will be bound and locked up forever having been thrown into the lake of fire. And sadly, everyone who has 
by the end of their life not followed Jesus. Everyone who is a sinner, everyone who is not righteous in Christ will be cast into that fire prepared for the devil and his angels as well. In the meantime, God is calling people to turn to him so that they will avoid that, so that they will not perish. And then after Revelation 20, we, we read those wonderful chapters, the final two chapters of Revelation, the final two chapters of the whole Bible. Revelation chapter 21, in which <clears throat> we're told that those who are Christ, those who have trusted in him, will wor- worship him and live in a paradise restored, a world where there is no suffering or sorrow or pain any longer. There will be no more diseases, no more illnesses. We'll have perfect bodies. We'll have perfect minds. There'll be no more mental health problems. There'll be no more dysfunctional relationships. There'll be no more exploitation of the poor, no more unjust government. We will have perfect fellowship together. There'll be no more antisocial behavior, no more broken relationships. Revelation chapter 21 describes what will happen after the judgment day, after sin has been banished forever. But most of all, we will be with God. And with the remnant of sin, the the fallenness of our bodies, our fallen nature, all a thing of the past, we will be glorified. Not the slightest remnant of sin any longer, either in our hearts or in the world. What a wonderful time. What a wonderful message we have here. While so much of what we have seen so far in Revelation has been understood as the history of mankind across time, with particular focus on the whole period from Christ's first coming to his second coming, the action has shifted here in these chapters from a sort of a documentary-style presentation of the world, the history of the world, right through now to a, to the very last stages, almost the chase scene in the story of human history. We see that there's, there's an increased level of anticipation, of excitement, of the end is almost here. Sin and Satan are being routed. The beast, the woman on the beast... We see that there's that joyous celebration in Revelation chapter 21 and that call in chapter 22 for anyone and everyone who wishes to simply trust in the Lord. In a sense, this chase scene where the devil has been routed is also a rescue scene. The church is a damsel in distress, in a sense, and She needs to be finally freed from the clutches of evil and sin. She needs to be freed to embrace her lover, to live happily ever after. And that's what will happen when the church is united with Christ, that great wedding feast of the Lamb that will happen after the judgment day. In fact, Have you ever wondered why so many films or stories or 
feature this same pattern of evil, of an evil character, a villainous character, and someone who needs to be rescued from them, and a powerful saviour who does the rescuing. The storyline is, is repeated in many, many films, from Superman, where Clark Kent rescues Lois Lane from the the, the evil and destruction from the, the villain Lex Luthor. Or you can look at Batman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman to think of just some superhero characters. Uh, there are so many more. Throw in the, story, the, the themes of superpowers and immortality and the story of Revelation, the story of human history that God presents here is repeated over and over and over again in, in the arts, in the films, in, or even in crime dramas where there is a, an investigator who finds and convicts the villain and rescues those who are in need from Colombo to Nancy Drew to Sherlock or, Sherlock or Morse. This whole theme of justice and rescue and putting those who are evil behind bars. That is not just something that's in the stories and the movies. That is something that is embedded within our consciousness. There's something in that that touches deeply within our souls. We're told that God has written eternity into the human heart. And these themes that we watch on our TVs or read in, in, in novels are, are simply a reflection of our need for eternal salvation. And what we've been seeing in Revelation so far has been the build-up to this final scene where evil is routed, where it can do no more damage, no more harm where all Jesus' enemies are being put under his feet and all his people are being rescued. This is the final sin where sin, scene where sin and Satan are condemned, judged, condemned and banished forever. So let's therefore look at chapters 17 and 18 um, before we'll go on later on, hopefully next week, to to 19 and let's look here at this first part of this chase scene this first part of this capturing and subjugation of sin and evil the liberation of God's people the climax of the story of human history well the first thing that we read in the end of Revelation chapter 16 and verse 17 is in these few verses at the end of 16, we read a summary of what will be played out in Revelation chapters 17 to 20. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple saying, it is finished. Those words, it is finished, are probably familiar to us because in our Bibles we read the same words said by Jesus on the cross when he had, had atoned for sin just before he died. 
the underlying Greek word that Jesus spoke on the cross is different to the word here, but it has the same effect. While Jesus said, it is finished, sin has been paid for. There's nothing else needs done to pay the price for sin. And that's why we, we aren't saved by works, we're saved by faith. Trusting in what Jesus has done, not by what we can do, because what he has done is finished. But while his work of atonement was finished on the cross, the work of how that works out through human history is still being worked out. We're still living out the implications of that. We're still living out how Jesus' enemies are being put under his foot. And what we're reading here, it is finished, is the vision at the end when all of God's wrath has been poured out, all of the rescuing, all of God's people have turned to him, all who have trusted in him have found in him a saviour. Everything is finished. Nothing more needs to happen. And with with those words, there were great flashes of lightning, thunder, a great earthquake. And in verse 19, we read that the city of Babylon was split into three sections. Actually, the Greek only tells us that the great city was fallen. And although the, the New Living Translation tells us that the city of Babylon was fallen, it's an interpretation that that city in the Greek is the same city which is referred to in chapter 17, the city of Babylon. What does the city of Babylon represent? That city which has fallen. What does what does Babylon mean in this context? Well, Babylon wasn't just a city. If we go back to the Old Testament, we see that it was a world superpower back in the day, several centuries before Jesus walked on this earth it conquered Judah and Jerusalem it took God's people captive took them back from Jerusalem from the countryside around from Judah back to Babylon and they were slaves and they were they were captured by the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people the Babylonians You might remember from Psalm 137 the words, well, you might be more familiar, some people are more familiar with the song, By the Rivers of Babylon, where we sat down. How can we sing songs of joy when we're in, in an exile situation? And they look back to Jerusalem. Babylon symbolized captivity. It symbolized oppression of God's people. It symbolized worldliness, worldly power. Babylon is, from what I've read, little more than a village now. It's not a superpower anymore. It wasn't very significant when Jesus first came either. But back then, several centuries beforehand, it was, it symbolized all that was wrong, all who opposed God's people. 
Babylon is is best understood in Revelation in a symbolic way. It doesn't refer to the city itself, but the image of Revelation is far more important. It represents worldly power against God. It represents unbelievers amongst the nations of the world who are opposed to godliness, opposed to God's people, opposed to God's ways. In verse 19 we read, The great city of Babylon split into three sections, and the cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins, and he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. We shouldn't read too much into the fact that the city split into three pieces. That's just simply a way of describing it was defeated. And this, in a sense, summarizes what has been foretold in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a, a footstool under your feet. The Father is putting all those who are enemies of God, whether people, whether demons, the devil, himself, under the feet of Jesus. And at the end of chapter 16 we read, It is finished. Human history has two strands. One where God's enemies are being crushed. And here we read it is finished. The other where where God's people are being rescued. And the gospel message tells us how God's enemies can become his friends through faith in Jesus. The last stages of this finished work of the Father are now described in more detail in in Revelation chapters 17 to 20. And what we see there is God's triumph at Babylon's fall. Here John is showing us more detail of God's triumph. At the end of chapter 16 we read the summary. It's finished. But in chapters 17 to 20 with a brief intermission in, in verse 19 the start, or chapter 19, the start of 19, we see the extended description. And probably the reason why it is such a long extended description of the fall of Babylon is because it is so significant that all the centuries of opposition to God of persecution of God's people, of opposition to everyone who turns to to Christ. Whenever somebody turns to Christ, they're automatically being opposed by those who have a worldly perspective. Sometimes that is persecution and even martyrdom of Christians in other countries, some parts of the world. Sometimes it's it's as simple as you walk into a room and you feel and you can sense that there's opposition. People don't have to say anything sometimes. Sometimes people are just pleased to see us, but at other times you can feel that and it's not just opposing us, it's opposing the one whom we follow. So here in 
Revelation chapter 17. Firstly, we see this woman, this prostitute sitting on on the beast. Who is this woman? <clears throat> we read, So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns, and blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and a beautiful and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. The mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. Who is this woman? What does she represent? Well, commentators have a few different ideas as to how to describe this woman, but their differences are more in detail. Generally, they have the same big picture. They have in common the fact that she delights in worldly wealth, is against God and God's people. She's grossly immoral and signifies betrayal of God opposition to him unfaithfulness in the Old Testament was often a way of symbolizing that God's people had become unfaithful to him for example the book of Hosea where Hosea was told to take a wife and his wife was unfaithful to him and God showed that this is how my people have been to me And yet Hosea forgave and forgave. And God forgives his people. He forgives us again and again. But unfaithfulness in terms of God's people or in terms of people in general is generally referring to turning to other religions, turning away from the one true God, mixing other religions in with the one true God's religion so there's a religious dimension to this woman as well unfaithfulness so often in the Old Testament has a religious dimension as well so we see worldly power religion that is against God and all religions apart from Bible based Christianity here All religions are ways of people have turned away from him, following other gods, following following other philosophies, other things that they worship. We see gross immorality, obscenities, blasphemies against God. What does that look like in real life? What does that look like for us today? Well, it's all kinds of obscenities on TV where things are shown which are constantly pushing the boundaries further and further. Not just against decency and morality, but sexual content in, in ways that we wouldn't have imagined 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. It looks like ungodly ways of thinking. A lot of postmodern ideas are ways of thinking that are not godly, that there is no such thing as absolute truth anymore. 
people say. You can believe what you like. They're all as true as each other. All religions are equal. There's no such thing as gender, birth gender. You know, you can, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. It looks like worldly power, the lust for power that world leaders have. It looks like individuals as well in our own lives. We want to be in charge. We want to be the God of our own lives. It looks like human trafficking, child abuse, domestic abuse, exploitation of workers. It looks like miscarriages of justice, atrocities committed not only by individuals and organizations, but also by governments. It looks like different religions. It looks like atheism, where sometimes people want to be good, but as the American Humanist Association says, their motto is good without God. Ungodliness wrapped up with a wrapper of goodness. Sin that is trying to present itself as not being sin. And it presents itself as the persecution of Christians. Even martyrdom in other countries around the world today. Closer to home it might mean simply being ostracized. Somebody having a dig at you for your faith. From little things to massive things. This woman riding the beast is has been experienced, has been lived out in all the ungodliness of this world. And just like people are seduced sexually, the world is seduced morally and people don't realise that they're following evil. They're intoxicated, drunk and don't realise that they've been duped. They're sinning and thinking it's great. We can do our own thing. We're just being ourselves. They don't realise that they're in bondage to sin. They think it's freedom. The woman rides the beast. And the beast is arguably more important than the woman, according to Morris. The beast gives the woman the power. And she is just essentially a way to visualize the evil of the beast. The beast is the henchman of Satan, worldliness and evil in mankind. And the seven heads symbolize the seven hills of Rome. Most commentators would, would be agreed on that. But by extension, that applies to, uh, to the worldly powers of any government or any system. Worldly power in itself. Whether individual rulers, individuals who have power over others, or whole nations. The eighth head seems to refer to the final antichrist which is similar but the last to come the seven heads are also seven kings how do we understand these things it's, it's very difficult but it seems as though these seven heads are also parallel at least to the statue that we read of in Daniel chapter 2 where there is the, the head of gold, the chest of silver, uh, the belly of bronze, the legs of iron and feet of iron and clay mixed together. Uh, the number of different 
parts of the statue is not exactly the same number of seven, but the idea seems to be there that different superpowers, different worldly rulers, or different kings, that there is progress in history. And the ten horns seem to symbolize the nations or rulers who will arise throughout the course of the centuries to come after John wrote this book and those who also oppose Christ and his followers. But despite all the work of the beast, despite all the work of Satan, despite the woman and the beast, despite all that is done, Christ will overcome. Together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings. He is called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. And in chapter 18 we read of the fall of Babylon, of worldliness, of worldly power, of immorality, of false religions, where we read, After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon has fallen, that great city has fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury, the merchants of the world have grown rich. And yet God calls people to come out. God in the gospel calls people to turn to him instead. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven, Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins, or you will be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven, and God remembers her evil deeds. And the rest of chapter 18 describes the defeat of worldliness and ungodliness. And Christ's enemies are finally vanquished, and they will weep and throw dust on their heads to show their grief. And they will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. The ship owners became wealthy by transporting her great wealth on the seas. In a single moment, it is all gone. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven, and people of God, and apostles and prophets. For at last, God has judged her for your sakes. At last. The, the final judgment on all sin and evil. It is finished. We look forward to that day when there will be no more sin or sorrow any longer. We look forward to that day when there will be no more abuse, no more exploitation, no more injustice. The greatest thing we can do to help people as well as campaigning and doing what we can to stop injustice and right the wrongs that we see and come across but the greatest thing that we can do is to bring the gospel to them so that they will have liberation for eternity 
God is fighting the battle. We're just calling people to join into his side. How should we live now? How should we live now in the light of all of that? Imagine you're watching a thriller, a film, and some people are on the edge of their seat or nearly climbing up the wall at times when, when things happen in a film. It can be tense, it can be exciting, it can be... You just don't know what's going to happen next. So too, when we look out on the world, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen next. And we can even become afraid. We can be in the edge of our seats. But imagine you're watching a film and you don't need to be in the edge of your seat. You've seen it before. You know how it ends. You know that it all looks desperate, but you know it all works out in the end. The villain is caught. Those who need rescued are rescued. And it's a happy ever after ending. Revelation is telling us the end. It's like we're watching the film before it has happened. John is writing the book of Revelation to the church, to the seven churches, and also to us by extension, so that they will know that Christ overcomes in the end. They're not looking out and seeing the oppression of the, the Roman Empire and wondering, where will this all end? Will there be a church in the second century well, we know there will be a church. Well, if, the 20, if, if, if the Lord is gracious and allows us to continue into the 22nd century, the church will continue. We know the basic message of Revelation is we shall overcome because Christ has overcome. They were facing persecution, but John gives them the comfort of knowing that one day will all be gone one day that will be gone forever we might be going through dark days personally at times but we know that these things will pass and we know that God is in control we know that he is making this happen we don't need to fear what will happen in the end we have to go through it, but we know we're going to come out the other side. And God is preparing hearts to turn to him. No matter what we are going through, it may be the difficulties of life, the pains of life, or it can be the pleasures, the good things in life. All these things, in all these things, God is pointing people to turn to him for, for help or for praise. And the gospel is going out again and again into the world so that people will turn to him and not perish but have eternal life. The church is being built and nothing will prevail against it. The world at the moment might not look as though 
we're in this final chase scene where the devil is being routed but it is slowly happening maybe it's going to happen more extensively at the very end we can't be sure but yet just a, a word of caution sometimes we can read apocalyptic literature we can read end times literature we can read of revelation and we, some people can get a bit scared thinking well if Jesus is coming now well that's it or even pleased that he's about to come we don't need to do anything well Paul had to write to the the Thessalonians and they thought that Jesus was about to come back in the first century so some of them gave up their jobs and just said we're just chilling until Jesus comes Paul says listen you don't know the hour just get back to work just keep doing your thing don't worry about it be productive just get on with life until the end comes We don't need to get paranoid. We don't need to to fear. The end will come and no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like a Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. And that's the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left, as Jesus says. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Two men in the field... One will be taken, the other one will be left. Uh, that's not promoting a whole theology of rapture, that there will be so many years after the church is taken away. That's simply a way of describing that when Christ comes again, the dead will rise, those who are alive will go to be with him, be by his side. Just like at school when somebody will pick out, well, you're making teams. I want this person and maybe nobody has picked you because they've got the ones that they want on their team. Well, these people are left. So too, when people have not turned to Jesus, when he comes and calls those who have trusted in him to himself, people will be left on their own. It's not that they'll be left behind as a rapture might teach. They will have no one standing for them. Those who have trusted in Christ will be with him. He'll be their advocate. He will be with them beside them on that day. 
and those who have rejected Christ will have no one to plead their case. On that day, people will be regretting having rejected Jesus. We have the opportunity now to turn to him while you still can. If you have turned to him, praise God that you know the end of the story. You've seen the story, you've read it here. Christ overcomes and in him we will overcome too. So let's not live according to the ways of the world. Let's live according to the ways of God. Let's live now in the light of how we will live then with him. Let's live in that new age in a sense. Let's live according to the rules and the ways of that new age even before it comes. Let's walk in holiness and let's walk in praise of our wonderful Saviour. Praise God for his mercy towards us. Praise God that he has overcome sin and evil. And praise God for his love for everyone in calling them to turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your great love for us. Lord, we thank you that you are calling everyone to turn to you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for your mercy. Lord, help us to communicate this to people. Help us to give you thanks for what we have experienced. And help us to look forward in anticipation, knowing that, that you are vict- victorious, Lord. It is finished. Lord, help us to, to not fear, but help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to walk with you. Help us to be your followers. Forgive us for our sins. And Lord, encourage us and strengthen us, no matter what we have to face. In Jesus' name, amen.